Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast with me, Melissa K. Norris. This is episode number 104, and I am really excited to introduce you to today's guest and also talk to you about permaculture. Permaculture is one of those things that's kind of trendy in the self-sufficiency and gardening world right now. You may have heard that term quite a bit. You might not know exactly what that means, not only the definition, but also what it means for the way that you garden or the garden practices. Or maybe you've heard a little bit about it, but you want to learn more about how to implement it into your garden and your growing practices. And that's exactly what we are going to dive in today. We have got permaculture gardening up for you, a complete beginner's guide with nine easy tips that you can start using and implementing within your garden today. I'm really excited for today's topic because it's one that I don't have a tons of hands-on knowledge myself. It's not something that I've been practicing enough that I feel comfortable giving you guys advice and how to knowledge on. So when that happens, I like to bring in someone who does have a lot of that knowledge and practicing what they preach, so to speak, so that I can learn from them and you guys too. So today we're going to be talking about permaculture, and I'm really excited to have Michael on the podcast and to pick his brain. So welcome to the show. Thanks. It's good to be here. Yeah. For those readers or listeners, this will be a blog post too as well, so they'll be able to grab the show notes. Can you give us kind of just a, a brief or a nutshell definition or what exactly when you hear, because a lot of there's kind of, it seems to be kind of trendy in the homesteading and the self-sufficiency and gardening world lately. You'll hear the terms permaculture gardening or hergaculture, for example. So can you kind of give us a little bit of a definition on what that actually means? Sure. The most basic way to, to think of it is the actual term permaculture is derived from two other phrases, permanent and agriculture. The idea being a system set up that maintains itself and does not require annual inputs to the degree that we would think of in a normal agricultural system. But a little more fully, permaculture is a design science and it provides a framework to meet our needs by following natural patterns in decision-making and planning. So if you, if you think of a forest, here I'm in the Shenandoah Valley in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. If you go for a walk here in the fall, it's mainly oak forest. If you go for a walk in the woods, it's a huge acorn mast and acorns everywhere in the ground. You can barely walk without walking on just tons of them. And nobody maintains that. Nobody planted those acorns. It's, it's a natural system, and it works very, very well. It works perfectly. We can, we can mimic those patterns that we see in nature to meet our needs. And so by using natural patterns, we consciously are designing and maintaining productive systems that have the versatility and the stability and the resilience of natural ecosystems. The, the oak forest 
it's going to continue to to grow and continue to to produce tons of of acorns every year without inputs and if we use that type of pattern for growing things ourselves then we can have that same resilience we can mimic that so then if you think in a in a in a system a piece of property a homestead or or someone has some sort of vacation property or perhaps they're looking at it as a retreat property and you want you know so typically people don't eat acorns so that example may not not fit but but they might eat pecans or they might eat chestnuts and if you look at how an acorn an oak forest grows up when when an uh, acorn shoots down a shoot into the ground when it sprouts the young acorn sprout is surrounded by other vegetation ground vegetation like poison ivy and different weeds and as it gets taller it's protected from the wind by things like mountain laurel and wild azalea and gradually it gets stronger and stronger and higher and higher to where it's still being protected by things like redbud or dogwood or smaller maples but eventually it gets big enough to where it's it's able to get the light in the upper canopy and it becomes a huge tree that's producing its own acorns and so we can mimic that by planting your apple tree or your pecan tree or whatever tree that you're interested in as far as food production mm -hmm. and you plant things around it that will mimic what we see in nature so you might plant around it something like black locust or, or autumn olive which are both nitrogen fixers they pull nitrogen from the air and accumulate it in their leaves and when they shed their leaves the ground around your tree becomes very fertile and each year you might go out and chop back those nurse plants and the the tree that you're trying to grow let's say it's an apple it becomes very strong it's 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 loving the nutrient rich soil that you're producing for it with these other trees around it and eventually it gets big enough that and if you continue to chop back the other trees they die off and the tree that you have planted is very successful because of it. it's a natural pattern and you might plant things around the base of it like comfrey or strawberries or things that will continue to put nutrients into the soil and and keep the grass from robbing the nutrients from the soil or the or the moisture from rain so basically we're following natural patterns in a manner when we do a design we're following natural patterns we take into consideration the solar aspect the way that the sun crosses a property and the way that water moves through the property and the wind and things we take into all consideration all these inputs and then we design systems in a way that are mimicking what we see in nature and in that way it's it's more successful and there's also an emphasis on perennials I like a good tomato as well as anyone but if we focus more on perennial 
crops and perennial plantings, you do less work and eventually you don't have to do anything except harvest if the system is sustainable. So those are some of the things that people would think of as far as permaculture, more of a permanent and perpetual type of uh, design rather than an annual, I'm going to plant corn and it's going to turn the sun, energy from the sun into food over a four-month period and then it's going to die and the next year I have to plant it again and nurture it or whatever. Whereas if you plant something like a chestnut, which can produce the same type of carbohydrate and, and flour, chestnut flour uh, can make flatbreads and things like that. Mm -hmm. Once it's up and growing, you don't have to do anything. There's a chestnut growing on Mount Etna in Italy. It's actually growing on a volcano. It's 4,000 years old. It's been producing bushels of chestnuts for 4,000 years. And you compare that with a broccoli or something that you plant that grows and of course when it dies off it you have to go to Lowe's the next year and buy plants and plant them all out again and so we, we try to focus on on more perennial production and more uh, sustainable production that require okay. less work and less inputs. Gotcha. And I get that when you were saying you guys live in the forest and using the forest example is great. I live in the Pacific Northwest in Washington State in the foothills of the Cascade Mountain. We've got lots of evergreen forests, not so much oaks, but we do have chestnuts that grow here, filbert, hazelnuts, you know, that different thing. I get the concept. We've got on our property, we have a mixture of pasture for our cattle that we raise, and then we've got forested parts that we leave too. And so walking out there one of our favorite things, in fact, at the time of this recording, within a month or so, if the, depending upon the weather, could be about six weeks out, we'll go foraging for morel mushrooms, which is one of our favorite foods of all time. Oh, yeah, we, yeah, we do that as well. It's great. Right. And like you said, nobody plants the morels. You know, the spores come back every year and, and within the forest and in the conditions and stuff. That's a form of permaculture, and one of my favorite things about foraging is I don't have to do any work, and I just get to go and reap the harvest every year, to be That's honest. Right. That's yeah. Right. When we're talking about the trees, we've got so many orchards that we've put in. We have blueberries and raspberries and all of that, and, and I do love perennial aspects because they do come back every year. With minimal work, we do prune so that we get a larger crop from most of our fruit-bearing bushes and trees and that type of thing. But I'm curious because for us, we do depend upon our annual vegetable garden. Now, I do heirloom seeds so that I can seed save so I don't have to go to Lowe's and buy my plants, but I can grow and put them back in. So it's more towards your perennial and doing food production on perennial, but are there any type of permaculture aspects that can be used in a regular annual vegetable garden, or is it really just more towards your perennial producing crops? No, and I shouldn't have overemphasized the perennial, but in design, in a permaculture design, I did a design for a person who lives at pretty good elevation uh, here in Virginia comparatively to most of the rest of the region. and. It includes, when, when we look at a design, we design by zones. 
So we start with zone zero, which is the inside of your house where you spend more more time. And then zone one, it, it just radiates out from that. So in zone one, we often design, most every time, design what we call a kitchen garden, which is what you think of typically as a annual vegetable garden. And some of the permaculture things that would apply to that are the idea of following the way that things grow naturally as opposed to doing things with a lot of input. So I had someone call me and they had, I get this question a lot when I speak, I've got this terrible piece of ground and it's got this horrid noxious weed that I can't get rid of and last year I planted things and everything died. Nothing grew past a little bit. What, what do I do? So if you look at nature again, and that's what we always do, the first one of the first principles in permaculture is to observe and interact. So when I go to a property, I'll just walk around the property for hours, just kind of getting to see what is there naturally. And if you look at natural plants, the mulch and everything is very important. So if you're doing annual planning, is very popular with permaculture practitioners is sheet mulching. And I'm sure you've heard of that and you've probably even talked about it before. But we will sheet mulch an area that perhaps needs to be rejuvenated with various kinds of mulch. It might be, you know, wood mulch and leaves and layers of cardboard and straw and things like that to create a new soil and then plant down through that and allow the plant to come up through the mulch. So we're still following natural patterns. If you look at the plants that grow in a successful natural system, whether it's a an oak forest or out there you have a lot of things like Douglas firs and when I speak I use a, are you, are you familiar, I don't know if you're far enough south, are you familiar with a sugar pine? No, I'm pretty northern. I'm about an hour from the Canadian border, so I'm not familiar okay. with sugar pine. Okay. It's primarily down on the western half of Oregon. Okay. It creates a, it's the biggest pine cone of any of the pines, and one pine cone will produce six bowls of cereal worth of calories. Really? Yeah, it's, it's huge. It's the biggest cone that you can find. And it looks just like a, most of the other pines that grow out there that are large. But the point being that trees mulch the ground themselves. Mm -hmm. And most people, you know, I, when I talk, I talk about lawns. And we have a lawn, and lawns are fine, but generally I think of big areas of grass as pasture, not as lawn. But this country has this fixation on lawns, and there's millions and millions of tons of fertilizer that are spread on lawns, and the leaves fall, which would be a natural fertilizer, but people rake them up, pay people to haul them off. Right. It doesn't make any sense in one point. But if 
if you use those natural systems and you have an annual garden and you mulch it heavily every year, your soil will become more and more rich because of that mulch. And that's a natural system. And that's, that's a key component of permaculture is what does nature do? Well, it mulches itself. It doesn't haul off the bad stuff. We were very busy last spring. It seems like we're always busy, but we were very busy last spring, and we didn't really have much time to tend our annual garden. And a lot of stuff came up alongside the tomatoes and such, and we had less pest problems than ever. Because the pests, they're like people. If you only like Chinese food and you come into Chinatown, in a big city, you're going to be really happy. And that's how pests are. They want the same, they have favorite things, and that's what they look for. Well, if they come to, like some people will plant marigolds in with their plants because it confuses the pests. They're like, what's this? What's this? And you can do that with trees as well. If you have all apples, you're more susceptible to pests that attack apples than if you have an apple, a pear, a peach, and so on. Because nature doesn't do it that way. Nature has variety, but in an annual sense, when we do permaculture and when we're, we're working in that zone, we also design things for the ease of the, the, the people doing the work. So, in other words, you wouldn't put your herb garden you know, 300 yards away from the house. You want the herb garden close because you're going to use that for, for cooking and, and you're going to want it close. The same way if you have chickens in your system, they have to be visited typically once a day or so, and so you don't put them far away. But your, your fruit trees, you don't visit them every day. You might visit them more frequently at one time of the year, but the rest of the time of the year you don't even care. You don't go and see them or anything. You don't look at them. And so they can be farther out. And we design things with with the human interaction in mind. Okay. Well, I love this because with the permaculture, I was more envisioning when people talk about it or what my interpretation of it is, which I'm really glad are having this conversation, is more of the no-till you know, where you don't till up your garden spot, and you don't till up the soil, and you do, like you said, the mulching. But all the other aspects, I'm really actually pleased because we've been practicing a lot of those, and I just didn't realize that it was technically called permaculture. So, for example, the companion planting, like you said, and of course not doing, you know, huge crops in one area, which is where I realize a lot of the big agriculture farmers, when you have a huge apple orchard, have those pest issues because it's all concentrated together. Naturally, on a home scale, when you're growing your you know, food production and self-sufficiency, it's a lot easier to put these things into practice. I'm really excited to hear you mention all of those. And I do have one question, though, mainly, and I want to hear your answer, because I actually get this question a lot, because we do practice doing mulching like you're talking about, especially with my blueberries and our raspberry plant as well. And a lot of people have heard that they are, are scared, hesitant to use 
wood when they're doing their mulching because they've heard that it robs the nitrogen from the soil and they don't want to do that. So a lot of people are very hesitant to use wood when they're doing their mulching method. Can you address that a little bit? Well, it is true that wood will absorb some nitrogen, so it's a give and take. I use, when we mulch for the winter, and we've been disadvantaged this year. Normally, I wait for a broad forecast of a pretty good snow. I go out and I mulch with cardboard and wood chips and straw. But we haven't really had any big snows yet this year, and doesn't you know it's the way that it's headed. Doesn't look like we're going to. But wood will absorb nitrogen out of the system. But the benefits, if you're not like putting four inch thick layer completely across your beds of of wood chips. I don't I would not I would not be concerned about the nitrogen loss. It is true that it does absorb some of the nitrogen, but as it rots and breaks down it's going to release it again anyway. So are you familiar with or have ever heard the term hugel culture? I have heard the term, yeah. Hugel culture is popular with, with permaculturists. It's actually the idea of burying wood in soil and then planting into that soil. Because the way nutrients move through soil is through the fungal net that sometimes if you're in the wood and you pull back a big piece of sod, you see this waxy, white, waxy su substance. And that's yeah. where mushrooms and morels come from, yeah. that substance, that is the pathways, that's the roadways that nutrients move. And wood is a very good producer of those nets, those uh, fungal nets. And so if you put that wood in the soil, you're going to gain from that. It also holds moisture in the soil better. And it does uptake some of the nitrogen, but it's not going to rob the nitrogen to the point where, you know, you, you're not going to get it from other other sources. I just wouldn't, I would, we, you know, you, were, you mentioned no-till a couple of times. Nature does not have that as a natural part of its system. And part of the problem with tilling that people don't, I think, understand, they want to get the weeds, they want to, they want to cultivate, and so they, till, but the tines, as they reach the bottom, they compact the soil below the depth of the sign. They pound the soil down, and so in the end you're getting less loose soil with a tiller than you would if you use something like a broad fork. But to answer your question about the wood, if it's not a big thick sheet of four inch depth of wood mulch, the amount of nitrogen loss is not enough to offset the benefits that you're going to get from having the wood in the soil. Okay, great. Yeah, thanks for answering that because it is a question that I get quite often. And we use, you know, we use wood here specifically, especially for my blueberries and raspberries. We have our soil lends itself to being acidic already on the pH balance just because we are forested where we're at. But my blueberries really like the acidity, so I mulch them with some cedar. And I also use that to help with the mummy berry. Unfortunately, here we have mummy berry, which is a mushroom fungus that actually infects 
the plant and it grows at the base of it. So in the late winter, early spring, I'll put down a fresh layer of cedar chips and I usually will mix that in with some different manure that I've either from our chickens or the cows or whatever as a compost, but to cover up that mummy berry to help stop it from reinfecting my plant for that year, but also, like you said, to give some more acidity to the soil and then to help protect it through the summer months because we don't water, I don't water my fruit plants and it does, it helps keep that moisture in and helps protect the plant. But I always, people always ask me about using wood when they're gardening. So I wanted to get someone else's, you know, to see what they thought about it. So thanks for answering that. I appreciate that. Sure. Yeah. So with the permaculture, what I love about this is we're basically just taking all of the things that, you know, nature that God already put into place when the whole ecosystem was designed and just using that to your best advantage. But we're doing it with the mind for food production as well. Right. Just mimicking what God has already laid out for us, mimicking that for our own benefit, like I said, you know, not many people eat acorns, but you can see how an acorn forest works, and you can mimic that with other things that, like hazelnuts that you might like. Yeah, for someone who's just coming into permaculture, like I said, I didn't even realize that we were practicing, which I'm thrilled to learn, that we were practicing a lot of these elements already. I just didn't actually have the term, the definition down on them. But for someone who's wanting to do more of this type of agriculture on their home, you know, landscape, that kind of thing. What would be some of your first tips for someone who's going out? Because for a lot of us, that planting season and, you know, when we're really thinking about starting to put some, maybe some new plants in or new trees in or whatever is coming up on us. So if you're going outside, what would be some of your tips so that you could self-evaluate your property and your land and to start setting up some permaculture? So kind of what would be walking through someone going out and who's wanting to implement these steps, kind of a beginner's, you know, kind of do these things first so that they could go home and self-do this on their own land. Sure. One of the first things we do when, when I'm doing actually a consult and a consultation, one of the first things that I do is find the highest point on the property and see how water moves across the property because what we try to do is get water to stay on the property as as long as possible because all anything that you plant that it's going to produce for your needs is going to require water and water hits the ground and it moves in at right angles to slope which is just you know a fancy way of saying that if you have a drop of water and it, it lands on a a plate and you tilt the plate, it's going to move directly away from the slope. It's going to move down. And water moves across your property that way. And so what you want to do is take advantage of the way that water moves across the property. But the simple thing to do is for people to actually go out and spend some time walking around their property and looking at how things grow and looking at, at how in the natural setting, what what does well there? And a lot of people say, well, weeds do well there. Okay, well, you know, what weeds are growing there? And look up what those weeds are and what characteristics there are. There are certain weeds, like people are aware of dandelion, that are very 
good plants to have around. You can do all kinds of good things with dandelion. But if you see a lot of dandelion, it means that the soil is somewhat compacted because dandelion has a pretty good taproot. And what has happened is that God has designed certain plants to show up to remedy problems with the soil. So if you're familiar with mullein, mm -hmm. okay, so you see mullein, if you see an excavation site where maybe they put in a new road and they haven't seeded the bank or whatever, it's just a raw dirt that maybe was deeper dirt and not much topsoil, one of the first things you see is mullein. It just magically seems to appear there. And another thing then you'll see is dandelion. And it's because the soil is compacted and those plants naturally want to loosen the soil to prepare the way for other plants that can't grow in compacted soil. Another thing for you to do is to look at edges. Um, in permaculture, we pay a lot of attention to and we value the edge. So if you have an edge where you have a fence row, look at what's growing in that fence row. The edge of a forest or where it's trying to reclaim a certain area, in any vacant lot, you said you have pasture land, mm -hmm. if you didn't have cattle on it or whatever livestock you're grazing, it would eventually go back to forest. Right. And it would, it would do it in a very... I won't say precise, but a very predictable manner. It would go back to the local forest in a very normal and very predictable manner. And, and so what you can do is look at what is growing naturally. Whoever you know, might be wanting to have their property be more productive or they're, you know, they're developing a homestead and they're like, what should we what should we grow? What will work here? I guess to give you an example, if, if we were to go back in time somehow on a time machine and go back, let's say, 10,000 years ago, most of North America was covered with a savanna-like terrain. It was trees interspersed with grasses. And it wasn't like all covered with forest. And there were animals grazing through what whatever types of animals it might have been. It might have been bigger animals than we have now. But there's evidence of big mastodons and things like that. And they moved through the system along with things like turkey and what have you. And they moved through the system and they influenced it. But it was a complete system. And then eventually people came in and cut everything down and did a lot of prescribed, you know, what they would call prescribed burning to keep things a certain way to meet their needs. But if someone has a property and they come in and they look around and they say, okay, well, what grows well here already? We're growing pawpaws. I don't know if you're familiar with that out there or not. Pawpaw is a native fruit. It's an odd fruit. and You don't hear too much about it because it doesn't keep or travel very well. So you don't see it in the stores. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of a cross between a pear and a banana. It's an odd thing. 
I've seen um, pictures and, and heard it. I haven't, I've not ever had it. Now, I'm, in fact, it's so funny that you bring this up because I was looking at it earlier this year, and it's one that I would like to try and grow here, but I'm not sure. I'm zone 7, so I don't know if it would grow here or not. I've just started looking into that, actually. Yeah, we're in zone 6A, and it grows naturally here. I mean, you can come across it in the woods, like native, like natural, like, you know, for thousands of years it's been mm -hmm. growing, so you should be able to grow it. But, you know, so you look and see what is growing, you, what is growing naturally, and then you just mimic that. And you mentioned berries and fruiting shrubs. That's permaculture. People love that kind of stuff because it comes back. You know, every year you know it's going to come back. One of my favorite garden vegetables is rhubarb. Yeah. And I wrote a blog post, if anybody goes to my blog, it's narrowpassagepermaculture.com. I wrote a blog post on, I wrote a blog post on, on rhubarb. It's, a, it's an amazing plant, and it's the first thing that comes up in our garden every year. And every year it grows a little bit more and spreads a little bit more and creates this enormous plant. And, you know, all you have to do is go out and cut it and harvest it, and it's great. What I would recommend for people to do is to spend some time looking at their property and, and looking at what is already growing naturally and thinking, how can we plant something that will be like that, that will benefit us? Gotcha. So, for example, and where we're at, and actually on our homestead, we did clear some forest where our house is, the pasture was already there, and then we've kept most of the forest that was already here, so we have a, a great mixture of each. Unfortunately here, we have Himalayan blackberry, which is highly invasive. It does produce a fruit, but it grows and is very, very invasive. In fact, here where we are, it's listed as a, a noxious weed because it's not native here, but it just spreads like wildfire, to use that cliche. Um, so we do battle that. We just cut it back, though. We don't use pesticides or weed killer because it doesn't really work on it anyhow, but because we don't practice that type of farming we do it you know do it naturally without harmful pesticides and chemicals but in our pasture and then in our yard that's around the house we do have a lot of dandelions and plantain as well so if you do have dandelions in your yard which is an indication of the heart compacted soil hard soil they do they have a massive tap root on them we also have a lot of foxglove what would be something that you would then say, okay, I've got dandelions, so I must have some compacted soil. What would be some good things then that you would pick to put in with that that would give you some food production? Or what if method you, would you use on that type of ground? Well, it just, it just depends. If I'm going to put in trees, I wouldn't necessarily worry too much about it. I might look and see what trees are, you know, have a deep, a deep taproot and we'll be able to go down and mine mine the nutrients out of the soil. But what I would probably do is if I saw that I had a lot of dandelions and I thought that the soil might be compacted, I might go ahead and plant, but I might plant around it a plant like comfrey. I'm assuming you're familiar with comfrey. Yes. Comfrey is an amazing plant, and it's, it's one of permaculture's favorites, actually, for several reasons. We, a, a permaculture principle that we try to follow is function stacking. 
and the idea of function stacking is we try not to bring anything into the system that doesn't do multiple things. So you think of, of a chicken, you know, you get lots of things from chicken. You get eggs, you get meat, you get feathers, you get manure. Yeah. They, one of the main reasons we have chickens is to prepare the soil for planting. You know, they get bugs out of the system. They will spread mulch for you. They're, they're just great. Well, comfrey is what we call a dynamic accumulator. It is able to pull nutrients out of the soil that most plants can't get. Various minerals and, and trace elements that most plants aren't able with their root system, they're not able to get it. And so comfrey can, and comfrey has an enormous taproot. I mean, it's, it's crazy long. And it pulls the nutrients out and accumulates it in its leaves. And so what we do, we use comfrey and make salves and that stuff because it's, it's got crazy healing properties. But, yeah. but a lot of times what I'll do, we have enough of it planted around different trees, like I was talking about pawpaws. I'll go out and three times, at least three times a summer, and just chop the comfrey all the way down, to, almost all the way down to the ground and just kind of chop up the leaves and let it lay as a mulch around the tree. And it's like the best kind of mulch you could possibly go because it has all those nutrients in it. We also make a comfrey tea, manure tea, out of the leaves. I'll, I'll fill up a five-gallon bucket and weight it and cover it in water and about Three weeks later, it is the most foul-smelling <laughs> that you can imagine, but it's like adrenaline for plants. I've never seen anything so effective. If you plant something and you think you've got compacted soil, mm -hmm. you could plant things like comfrey. You could put daikon radishes, if you're familiar with daikon yeah. radishes. I am. That's a great thing, and you just plant them and let them and don't harvest them. I mean, you can harvest them if you want, but you can just plant them. You you know, you have the plant if you want it for food, but it also creates its own loosening of the soil because it grows down really far. Right. And then when it rots, it puts nutrients back into the soil while leaving the soil less compacted. So that's what I might do if I really thought it was really compacted mm -hmm. and I was going to plant a an apple tree or if I wanted to plant a lot of something in a field, I might seed it with daikon radish and just let it go. Or or some people I've seen use turnips. Okay. Plant a field full of turnips and it just it just loosens the soil and then as it rots it puts those nutrients into the soil. Beckon. I love that. And that's so with the comfrey, I never thought of doing a comfrey tea. I will say, just for people who are listening, if you're not familiar with comfrey, comfrey is a great herb. It's an herb that is not usually recommended to be ingested, but for topical uses and in the garden, it is amazing. But I love where you say that you go out three times a year and you basically give that baby a crew cut and then it comes back and you use that for mulch. But also just to let you know, if you plant comfrey, make sure 
that it's where you want it to be because comfrey yes. is hard to eradicate <laughs> because it is such a good long tap root, but it's not something that you can easily take out and move to another spot and get it out of that area. So just make sure that right. that's going to be kind of its permanent home. But yeah, and then it is hard to kill. So if you have issues with growing things, which some people do, that's usually a great one to go with because it pretty much just takes care of itself from there on out. But I'm excited because I'm actually going to be putting some beneath our fruit trees. I don't have any beneath our fruit trees at the moment, but I love the idea of the tea. And I know a lot of people will do manure tea. And like you said, it's where you'll put manure in a five-gallon bucket, usually one that you can put a lid on. You'll put it with water and you'll let it sit and then you'll drain it off and what you're draining off, that tea, um, is what you will feed to your plants. But a lot of times using, like I've got some of my herbs actually in a planter and because I'm going to be eating those herbs, like my rosemary and my sage, almost, I've got them planted in a little microclimate up close to the house. I can almost harvest those year-round. And so I'm hesitant to pour the manure tea on them just because when you're using, you know, fresh manure or, you know, manure, that kind of thing, you generally don't want to put it on plants that you're going to be eating right, right away yeah, for bacteria and stuff. Yeah so, I'm, yeah, so I'm excited to use the comfrey tea because that I would be able to put on there and not really have to worry about, you know, E. coli and all of that kind of stuff. I think it would be a, a lot safer bet for those edibles that I'm going to be consuming right away. Like I said, I do not know why the plant doesn't smell bad, but as that it breaks down, it's really crazy. You put these leaves in a in a bucket and and you treat it like you would if you were making um, sauerkraut. You just weight it, put a plate in on top of it, and weight it, and so that it holds the the leaves down below the water line. Mm -hmm. And about about 21 days or so later, you have this the leaf leaves dissolve. Oh, wow. They, okay. They actually dissolve. And you might have stems left, but the leaves dissolve into this black liquid, and it smells really bad. You do not want to have this inside your house. Okay. It, 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 is, the, it is crazy foul-smelling substance, but it really works good. Uh, one other thing about comfrey is it is it's known, and we have seen it, very much a positive insectiary. In other words, oh. it, it brings in all kinds of bugs, spiders that eat harmful pests. So if you have them around your fruit trees and stuff and the grubs are trying to get up after, after the eggs hatch out and they're trying to get up, a lot of times the insects that like to live in comfrey will take them out. Oh, I love it. That's like the uh, best companion be planting. have an apiary. Yeah, yeah, comfrey is just, it does it all. Okay, good. Yeah, I'm going to be putting some in there. You've, you've, you've sold me. I'm putting it beneath my fruit trees now. <laughs> awesome. This has been great. I've actually learned quite a bit, and I'm excited for the comfrey to be adding that in. I've, we have a neighbor who graciously lets me harvest comfrey from their patch. I don't actually have any on my own homestead, so I'd already planned to put it in, but I'm going to be putting it beneath the fruit trees. For all of the awesome things that Michael and I have been talking about in this interview, resources and the links and those stuff, you can always get those for the full blog post and article in the show notes at melissaknorris.com. Click on the podcast button, and this is episode number 104. Thank you so much. This has been great. I appreciate it. I was, I was happy to do it. Enjoy talking about it anytime. Well, thanks so much for having me on your blog and your Today's episode is sponsored by Pioneering Today Academy, 
And I am doing a very special Encore presentation, which is a free, it's online, but it's totally free, live masterclass on what crops and how we raise enough of our own food for a year. So this is going to allow you to ask me questions live and I've got an entire presentation so that you can visually see it as well as listen audio wise. So to get in on that, you are going to want to go to melissaknorris.com slash year of food or you can also go to my Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Melissa K. Norris and message me the words I'm in or remind me. And that will give you the information to get signed up for this class. Now, if you're listening to this recording in the future right now, it's April 14th when this is going up. If you're listening to this in the future and we offer the class again, I'll still send you some notifications that way. But what the really cool thing is, is when you message me, is there a software when you message me in the actual message box on Facebook, so not on the Facebook page, but within the message box function, it can send you the reminders for when we do these free online trainings like this, as well as the Thursday morning Pioneering Today live show. That's every Thursday morning at 8.30 a.m. Pacific time right on Facebook, and it will shoot you a message reminder in there because I don't know about you guys, but I am so super busy. We all are, right? And there's a lot of things that I have every intention of going to and I want to go to them and then I forget and then I realize it and I'm like, oh, I'm so bummed I missed that. And this just lets me shoot you just a really quick reminder right before we go live and you can jump on there or you can always watch it later, but it just gives you that reminder, which is great. So you've got two options there to get registered for the class and get those reminders. And then, so for today's verse of the week, this is one of my favorite verses and I actually have been working my way through since the beginning of January, the first of this year, I decided to work my way back through the Bible and I usually start in the Old Testament and then the New Testament and read a little bit from each part each day. So right now I'm in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13 chapter and 13 verse to be exact and this is from the Amplified um, version of the Bible and the verses and so faith hope love abide faith conviction and belief respecting man's relation to God and divine things hope joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation and love true affection for God and man growing out of God's love for and in us of these three but the greatest of these is love. And the whole the whole ver chapter is great. But so many times I tend to get wrapped up in, you know, things that I need to get done or you know, we've got plans, we've got goals or we just have stuff in life that we have to do every day. And some of them are just good things and so we schedule them in like we know we're supposed to do such and such thing. You know, we've got all of that in our schedule like I know I need to read my Bible every day cuz I need to stay rooted in the word of God. You know, I need to drink so many glasses of water every day or I need to do this for my family, you know, whatever it can be. You know, we can go in really in depth there on everything, but anything. And But it doesn't really matter if we're doing these good works and they're good things. That's great. But if we're just doing them because we're supposed, we think we're supposed to be doing them, if we're not doing them with love, then it really doesn't matter because it's our intentions and it's our heart that God is concerned with. So this is just one of those verses that I like to come back to and is such a good reminder to me to make sure that my motivations are where they need to be. 
I want to thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Pioneering Today podcast. And I can't wait to see you on the next episode. And I hope that you go and get signed up so I can see you in our free live classes too, so that I actually get to have the conversation and talk back with you guys. Though I love the podcast, I don't get to have as much interaction as I do in those live classes, which is super fun. So I hope to see you there.